0: After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP, that's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and with me, I have a guest who has been on the show before, but I have wanted him on to talk about Canadian film because he's a very big fan of it and knows a lot, and it's really exciting. Jonas Chernick is with me today. Hey, Jonas, how you doing? I'm
1: great, Becky. How you doing?
0: Excellent. Thank you. And uh, congratulations on winning a ton of awards at the Toronto After Dark Film Festival for James vs. his Future Self. That's awesome.
1: Thank you. I mean, you know, it's just four awards.
0: <laughs> it's nothing. Not just Best Canadian Film. You won a bunch of stuff.
1: Yeah, I uh, I think most filmmakers, actors would say, oh, no, awards are meaningless. But you know what? I don't think so. I love awards. <laughs> And I will take them, and I'm very, very happy that we won. It's very validating. You work so hard on these movies, so any acknowledgement is much appreciated.
0: How was the audience for you guys here in Toronto?
1: Phenomenal. Phenomenal. It was an incredible audience. That festival has great audiences anyway. They really just fell in love with the movie. You could feel how charmed they were. They laughed at all the right places and then some. It was a great experience, great festival. And we we were thrilled.
0: Oh, I'm so happy for you. Where's it off to next?
1: Uh, so just announced yesterday, we're going to be screening at the Whistler Film Festival in a few weeks, which is very exciting. Uh, we're playing the real Canadian Film Festival in Fernie, British Columbia. I can't announce it yet, but there is a there is a, a great our U.S. premiere is going to happen early in 2020 at a very cool festival and I'm very excited about it.
0: Well, people are going to be able to check out this film very soon, obviously, on VOD. It's going to be near them and I highly recommend they do because it is awesome. Yeah. I love it so much. It's a great performance it's, from you. It's a great performance from Daniel Stern. It's a great performance from Francis Conroy. It's a great time.
1: It's going to play theatrically in across Canada uh, at the e- uh, end of February, early March.
0: Oh, that's exciting. So,
1: <laughs> so you can see it in theaters and then, of course, very, very shortly thereafter, you can catch it on VOD
0: fantastic. Now, here's a film that we are going to talk about today that you picked that is available on Fandor of all places and not really anywhere else, but it's so nice that it is actually available. What film did you pick, Jonas?
1: I picked Bruce McDonald's 1991 Canadian classic, Highway 61.
0: I cannot believe how long it took us to get to this movie.
1: I I am couldn't believe it. when. I mean, it would have been my, it was my first choice. You sent me a list of available titles and boom there it was uh, and I thought I can't believe my luck it for me this is the this is the movie that for me started it all uh as far as my career in cinema uh as an actor writer producer of feature films in this country it started the whole process for me it was the film I modeled my career on and I am so excited that we're going to talk about it.
0: Okay, now take me down the road of how this one little Canadian independent film that, from what I have read, was a nightmare to make. Uh, how did this start you off on your own path of beautiful nightmares?
1: So imagine, if you will, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, in the uh, late '80s, early '90s, and I'm a film buff, and I'm I'm at I'm in high school, and I'm thinking about taking film in university, film studies. But the but the the idea of making films is not, is foreign to me. I d- I didn't I don't realize that in Canada we make our own films. I'd seen films that I knew were shot in Canada. There were rumors that Porky's was shot here. You know, I grew up on A Christmas Story. But the idea of a, a real cinematic expression, a real film being made by Canadian artists, did not was not on my radar. And then I and then I go to the Garrick Theater in Winnipeg. Occasionally, would play indie films, and I, I find myself really curious about this this little movie that I know nothing about. And I I just randomly go to a screening. I try to see as many movies as I can. And there I am at the Garrick Theater watching the theatrical release, watching Highway sixty one. And I'm very aware that this is being made here in Can. This is a Canadian movie about Canadians with a very Canadian sensibility, telling a story that takes place in Canada and, of course, in the United States, but clearly shot in Canada. And my mind is blown. Uh, uh, for everything about it blows my mind. And I come out of that movie thinking, "This is there's a new path for me. I, I, I want to do that. And now I know that people in this country can do that. And now I'm going to try.
0: And then how fast did you get to Toronto after that?
1: So, so Toronto was still about eight or nine years away. But what I was able to do is I tapped into the Winnipeg filmmaking community. I mean, Winnipeg has the Winnipeg Film Group, which has a long tradition of making art films and indie films, very well-recognized organization. It wasn't on my radar until this. I started to find out, now, wait a minute, are people in my city making movies? And suddenly I'm auditioning for locally made films. I'm trying to watch as many locally made films as I can. I'm becoming friendly with, and getting to know the filmmaking community in Winnipeg. And so I started making indie films in Winnipeg and acting in a bunch of them and started writing scripts. And that all led to the eventual move to Toronto in in the year 2000. But there was plenty of filmmaking in Winnipeg and – and and getting to know that community before I moved.
0: Now, I'm thinking about some obvious heavy hitters from Winnipeg, like John Pays or Guy Madden. Were you in any of those circles there?
1: Yes. So a year later, in 1992, my stepfather was working on a Guy Madden film called Careful. He was in the art department. He was painting sets. And so right around this time, the consciousness of this of this community came into my came into my circle, and I and right right after I see Highway sixty one within the next within the next few months, all of a sudden I you know I'm looking I'm watching Guy Madden films and trying to learn as much as I can about this guy, and now my mom's husband is working on uh, the movie, <laughs> so I said Ron you know can I can I come can I be on set can you tell him that, that you know your your girlfriend's son is an is an actor. And and the next thing I know, I'm an extra in Careful. And you can see me there. I got one day, one scene. There's a, a, a bunch of, of young men all in costume, lots, standing in a row, blowing on surreal yellow horns. And the camera pans across all of us. And I'm there in this lineup. It's my first appearance on camera ever. and And so... It was my indoctrination and my introduction. And getting to be on set and watching Guy direct this visionary adventure was just inspiring and got me so hooked I wanted to do it more I wanted to be there every day
0: Jonas this is why I really wish there was an IMDB for background performers who later went on to do bigger things because uh, I've seen Careful I love Careful was that the scene with Jackie Burroughs by any chance
1: oh it's been so it's been decades since I okay. watched it now it might be on my IMDB page I can't say for sure if it is or not, but I know I definitely had it on my resume for a long time. And I, <laughs> of course, I didn't write background actor. I wrote, you know, horn playing guy. From there, I, I watched all of Guy Madden's backlog. I, you know, I watched Archangel and Tales from the Gimli Hospital. And and from that point on, I was obsessed with him and then, you know, got to know him because it's a small community in Winnipeg. You know, suddenly, suddenly we're kind of in the same circle and I'm bugging him at Bar Italia while he's trying to drink his coffee and giving me advice. And, and he, he gave me great great tips over the years and and john pays was another guy that you know i think it was a few years before that my mother was was a late i was a mature student studying fine arts at university of manitoba and she took a class that was taught by george tolls who is the screenwriter of many of guy madden's films and who showed an early cut of crime wave to his students and my mom told me when i was a kid i was a kid at this point hey we're going to watch a movie by a locally made filmmaker in class today. Do you want to come and watch it? And I sat in that in this theater at the University of Manitoba. I don't know how old I was. I'd have to look at that. I don't know what year Crime Wave was. Maybe it was 85. So I might have been 11 or 12. And I watched Crime Wave. And, of course, this was years before I watched Highway 61. So the seed had been planted. I just hadn't put connected the dots. I hadn't put it all together yet that – We can do this here. We can tell our own stories and make films here.
0: Crime Wave is very clearly a DIY movie. It's very simple, hilarious, brilliant, and wonderful. But also, weirdly, I'm pretty sure very influential on Highway 61 when you get to the whole idea of the serial killer in Crime Wave and uh, Mr. Skin in Highway 61. We're going to get into this. Yeah, it's interesting to see at that time because there was so little going on across the country. We were still waiting for the new wave of filmmakers of which Bruce McDonald and Guy Madden were part of, that you're now seeing these whole new films come out in a different way, and how they sort of influenced each other. Of like, oh, I like that they did that. Maybe we're going to steal that and go play with this, and and uh, playing with the idea of the clown, like you see in um, "I've Heard the Mermaid Singing." Like, there's lots of really interesting parallels throughout that time in all the films that were coming out.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And you know, looking back at it now, it was absolutely an influence. For me, as a kid growing up in Winnipeg, it was an abstract thing. It wasn't, you know, I knew I loved acting. I knew I loved movies. I watched this very strange and very affecting movie in George Tolz's uh, film class that my mom was attend uh, was a student in, and I hadn't put it all together. But yeah, Crime Wave was instrumental in all of that. There was not a lot of films being made in Winnipeg in Canada at that point. And you're right, we were still five, six, seven years away. From this movement, but I think everyone acknowledges that John Pace's films, especially *Crime Wave*, was was seminal.
0: No question. Well, we've talked about heavy hitters, we've talked about new wave, we've talked about horn players. So now we have to talk about what *Highway 61* is about. Uh, Jonas, do you just want to walk us through the plot just a little bit? So *Highway
1: 61* is the story of Pokey, a twenty-something barber and amateur horn player who lives in a small town uh, in northern Ontario whose life is kind of mundane and, and boring and, until he stumbles a- across a dead body in the abandoned bathtub outside behind his, his home. It sort of becomes the town hero for a day, uh, which coincides with, what's her name, Valerie's character? Jackie uh, Bangs. Jackie. So Jackie Bangs, a kind of roadie for a rock, a rock group and who's traveling around Ontario, was on the run, and she's stolen drugs from, her, from the band that she's bailing on. And she co- she kind of intersects with Pokey at this time and, and reads in the paper in the small town that there's this dead body. And so she decides she's gonna claim the dead body as her brother, hide the drugs in his body and use it to smuggle them over the border to get to New Orleans where she's supposed to be either handing the drugs off to a, a sort of bizarre drug lord that we meet in one scene or capitalize financially on this. And so she's on the run, she and Pokey hook up she convinces everybody she's the sister of this dead body and pokey who's never left the small town in his 20 something years follows this alluring kind of romantic, exciting, dangerous woman uh, and brushes the car off, the dirt off the car in his garage that he's never driven. And off they go down highway 61 tracing the history as pokey says, the history of rock and roll music along the way en route to new Orleans. And of course, The element of danger that follows them is we meet this mysterious drifter known as Mr. Skin who claims to be the devil and who takes Polaroids of the individuals whose souls he purchases for whatever they are looking for, whether it be a case of a case of beer that night or fame and fortune. He gets them to sign a contract. He takes their Polaroid and and, uh, carries it with them waiting for one of these hundreds, nay, maybe thousands of individuals to die so he can claim their soul. And again, he's the third member of the trio that intersects here because he's got this dead guy on his list and he's ready to claim the soul. But Pokey and uh, Miss Bangs have kidnapped the body and headed off to the United States before he gets a chance to claim what he believes is rightfully his. So he is on the road following them trying to get that body before they get down to New Orleans.
0: Beautiful and articulate. Thank you so much. I couldn't have said it better myself. So in terms of how this film works, now this fits in what originally was a trilogy of road trip movies by Bruce McDonald, starting with Roadkill, following by uh, Highway 61. Then he took a break and did a few other films, including Dance Me Outside. And then he did Hardcore Logo, which we've talked about in the show previously. Uh, And then decade later, he did Weirdos, but we don't talk about that. But (laughs) how familiar were you with the trilogy and do you think this is kind of the anchor point of the three? Yeah, I do. I mean,
1: I'm a big fan of the trilogy. I saw Highway 61 first and and the movie blew my mind, not just because it was Canadian, made by Canadians about Canada. There was something about the sensibility of it. I really connected with Pokey, with Don McKellar, who wrote the script as well and plays this character that I kind of modeled most of my acting career on, this sort of lovable loser who beats the odds. You know, the movie blew my mind. I watched watched Roadkill afterwards, and I, I love Roadkill, but it doesn't have the same spot in my heart as Highway 61. Then finishing with Hardcore Logo, which I believe is as close to a masterpiece as you can get, really... Sealed the deal for me on this trilogy, but yeah, Highway 61 is the beating heart underneath it all. To me, it's it feels like the most honest and the most alive and energetic and emotional of the three stories. Hardcore logo is its own beast, and I love it so much, but Highway 61 is the is the center for me.
0: For me, Highway 61 feels like the least cynical.
1: Yes, it absolutely is the purest of the three, yeah.
0: Roadkill is very much a fuck you to going down the road. Like, pure and simple, instead of your two loser guys, you've got sure. Valerie Bouchard as, like, this badass woman. You know, she already has a job in media, whereas the two boys want jo- jobs in media, and she's like, screw this, I'm going on an adventure. There's just so much in it that is just, we are spitting in the face of everything that Canadian film used to be in all of Canadiana. And then Highway 61 comes along, and it's this beautiful, genuine story about a dude whose Canadianness, his essential Canadianness, is what saves the day at the end. And he's such a good guy that he's the one who has to make it through the wilds of America and because he's essentially a good human being, he survives it. And then Hardcore Logo is just a, oh my god, it sucks to be Canadian, and especially in a rock band. That's just a, a nasty look at relationships in general and the toxic of what traveling together that long can can do and can become so it's an interesting film to sit in the middle of someone's trilogy
1: you know that's a really good point and one i hadn't thought about and the the takeaway from highway 61 is yeah it's it's there is a there is a a happy ending here i mean sure mr skin aka satan is kind of left in the dust he doesn't achieve what he's looking for he kind of ends up a wandering soul we don't really know what what happens to him but certainly our two our two leads are incredibly uh fulfilled as far as where they end up i mean it is a happy ending pokey has broken through his shell and he and spoiler alerts here and he you know he ends up having seen the world and lived and stood up for himself and she also Goes from a selfish objective of of, of selling this, these drugs and making the money to actually letting the body go and letting the drugs go and and moving on. I mean, it is you're right. It it is an optimistic movie in its own way, certainly more than those other two. So an unusual trilogy in that regard.
0: So there is a fantastic essay that I'm going to point people towards uh, on LinkedIn, of all things, written by Colin Brunton. So he wrote two. He wrote one about Roadkill, about how we made Roadkill, and the second one he wrote about how they made Highway 61. And it is this gorgeous, I think it's just, it's probably about seven or eight pages long, uh, litany of all the horrors they had to go through to get this thing made. And it's such an incredible look at how how hard it is to make independent film and what the emphasis is that you need to put on different aspects of how to make stuff. Um, they didn't have a script finished before they started to put their pitch package together and their media kit so that they would be able to get funding to actually make this thing. But making the pitch package and the actual media kit is what helped them define what the film was going to be.
1: Oh, wow. you, c- you got to send me that. I want to. I want to read that. That's incredible. I can't even imagine what went into it. You know, At that time, nobody was doing it. The, the filmmakers had made these, these low-budget indie movies with their heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears, they were kind of reinventing the wheel or inventing the wheel. Now there's a model, there's several models. And when we embark on making an indie film, no two are made the same, but there are a multitude of experiences that you can draw from and look at and people you can talk to. But then there really wasn't the same kind of experience to draw from. So, you know, I, I, it's, it's mind blowing and fascinating how they did it.
0: I mean, they got incredibly lucky on a lot of things. Like they had made road kills, so they had a little bit of cachet, so they were able to make a couple of sales overseas. Now, the overseas sales, especially to the UK, were made based on the promise that Iggy Pop was going to be in the movie. Oh wow! And Iggy Pop did give them a verbal agreement that he was going to come and he was going to play the character of Otto, which was eventually played by Art Bergman. And then what happened was, is as they were going along and they had finalized their funding with the UK, it was all good. Everything was happening, and then they got a call from Iggy's agent because he had just done 30 days of a press junket for John Waters' Crybaby, and had now decided that he was a thespian and needed to do full method for everything he was doing, and he couldn't possibly be ready in time to do the two shooting dates, only really requiring one, but they'd made room for two that they needed him for. They lost him, just like that, because they didn't get anything in writing.
1: Oh, wow, that is fascinating. I didn't obviously didn't know that. I mean, it's hard to imagine the movie without Art Bergman. But, you know, Iggy Pop would have just added, that would have been incredible. Wow!
0: I know, isn't that bananas? And so then they went through and they started writing to, uh, like, every rock star they could possibly imagine. Everyone from Alice Cooper to David Bowie to, like, they wrote to everybody. Apparently, Jamie Farr from MASH was interested and they were trying to rack their brains of, like, all right, how can we turn him into this character? How can we make this work?
1: Weird! Wow, that's crazy! Isn't
0: that bizarre? I know, and then, um, when they were casting this, this was non-union, and both Don McKellar and Valérie Bougiard withheld from becoming Union before they before they did it. They booked something Union, but they decided to hold off one more so that they can do this film. But they needed someone to play Mr. Skin, who was non-Union, and people just kept auditioning, and they couldn't find anyone. And Maury Chaikin actually called them up and said, hey, I want this. I love this script. I want to do it. And they were like, uh, dude, it's non-Union. Like The uh, talent union in Canada is uh, going to be looking at you. You might want to check this out. And his agent, sure enough, called and said, yeah, he can't do it it so heartbreaking but yeah that's it's just those weird like what if sort of worlds of okay Iggy Pop is now in this movie and so is Maury Chaikin and what does it look like does that mean more sales does it mean more people see it does it not disappear
1: oh that is just wild yeah I mean I mean every indie film has some story like that it's it's fascinating to hear that about this one I'm going to definitely read that article but yeah and I didn't realize it was non-union at the time I guess we hadn't seen Don other than uh, roadkill, and we hadn't seen Valerie in anything, and I guess Earl Pasco. this is his first on-camera role, so... It makes sense, it, but what a great, what a great cast! What a, what amazing performance throughout the whole movie!
0: And even Don McKellar wasn't supposed to be playing the lead role. They actually wanted to find an actor who was black to do it.
1: Oh wow! Because
0: it's about the journey down and the the history of rock and roll, and that just seemed more apt to them.
1: Oh well, I, it's hard to imagine that as well. But but there is an actor in the film uh, uh, named uh, I think his name is Peter Breck. Yes, he played the father of the of the trio of girls. He had been around for a very long time. So it's, I'd, I'd love to ask Colin, who wrote, whoever wrote the article, about that. Because he, he already had, he'd been in, he had dozens of credits. He'd been on television series his whole life. Um, so maybe he violated certain rules to get into the movie, but I don't know.
0: There's probably something in there. I think there's something in the, uh, in the article about Peter Brecht. It's just, there's so much in it that I don't want to be like, here is the whole story. Yeah, yeah, no, leave
1: something, yeah, leave something for your listeners to enjoy.
0: Exactly. Oh, and it's, it's so great. And especially just thinking about like film is so disposable for us now, especially with things like Netflix, there's a new movie popping up every single weekend that you can now watch, consume, talk about on Monday and it's gone and you're on. To the next one. And we forget how hard movies are to actually make and how much love and how much attention goes into them, especially if you're an indie filmmaker. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you forget, I don't forget. <laughs> you know, it takes me 4 years to get one made and I'm constantly working on getting one, you know, out there. So, I'm 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 quite attuned to it, but that's that's not to say that I dis- I don't disagree with what you're saying. I feel like, you know, most people, 99% of people sit down to watch a movie like this and especially now when they're so inundated with content, they're not aware of what goes into it and how many people have sacrificed so much for this vision to get this thing out there. Um, so it is a miracle every single time. And, and i got to add in about, so Bruce McDonald, Don McKellar, and Valerie Bahajar, like, uh, and even Earl Pascoe, I can add him to the list. These become, in many ways, icons for me. I've seen this movie a million times. You know, I own it on DVD. And... As I'm venturing into the world of professional film as an actor, trying to write, produce, looking at Don McKellar and saying, that's what I want to do. I want to write these movies and I want to act in them and have a hand in getting them made and create an identity through and figure out who I am through this process and really, you know, explore my artistry that way. I used to work at a video store at the time. I worked at a video store in Winnipeg and I and I grabbed the poster. For highway 61 and it was on my wall for all these years so I'm i'm literally looking at don and valerie and bruce and thinking this is what i want and, and now here i am many decades later and i know all of them and i've worked with all of them on multiple projects Valerie and I became very very good friends when I got my first professional theater gig in, in 1999 it was in a play with her and we you know we went to saskatoon and, and and Winnipeg and did this play together and when I moved to Toronto she was like a great friend who who welcomed me to the city and showed me around and you know and and, and Dawn, I had the great pleasure of being in the in the, a member of the TIFF talent lab program in, in one of my first years in Toronto and Dawn was was one of the leaders of the group and so I spent a week being mentored by him and we did a scene together that Brian De Palma kind of direct oversaw and 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 I mean so I, and Bruce cast me you know in a tv series that he directed so I I've had experience I've worked with these people now and for me to look back and rewatch this movie last week as I did in preparation for this podcast it was an emotional thing for me because it took me right back to being that 18 year old wide-eyed kid thinking dreaming that maybe I could have a career in movies in Canada and here I am all these years later talking about it on a podcast with you and reflecting on the various projects that I've made with all of these people. it's It's been quite an amazing adventure and a great run.
0: It's an incredibly beautiful story and a beautiful experience and, and transformative, obviously. And and something that concerns me with that story is that because we talked about the, the shift now of, of media just becoming so consumptive that we're just chewing and chewing, do you think younger generations are having those same experiences and those same realizations of, oh my God, we make this thing here?
1: Probably not. I think that... Because especially Netflix really tied everything together, because when now when you watch Netflix, you know, my favorite shows on Netflix are from uh, a show from Germany, a show from Sweden, a show from Israel. And, you know, my my kids are going to grow up in a world where on Netflix, they're just going to see the best content from all over the world. I don't think they'll ever, there's ever going to be a question for, for kids watching movies and TV now that this stuff is happening, because it's so much more of a global experience and an international experience. And I don't know if that's a bad thing. I, I think there's more product, there's more content coming from each country. Canada has more of a voice now. There's way more Canadian movies out there and Canadian TV shows out there, both being consumed in Canada and around the world, that... There is a voice now. I mean, we didn't have, you know, there wasn't a corner gas and a and a Schitts Creek and, and a working moms in 1991. You'd be lucky if you know there was a Due South maybe. But we didn't have that much content. We don't have that many voices speaking from from our own language and from our own perspective. And so, so I'm an optimist. I'm a positive dude. I look at this as a good thing. My kids are gonna. They're never going to question that they that they can tell stories if they want and they can reach a global audience and it can be uniquely Canadian. That doesn't have to be a realization for them. They're just going to be born with it, I guess.
0: I think that is a perfect place to talk about the favorite moments that we have of this film, what we genuinely love.
1: Uh, there are, there are so many. I really love the introduction of Mr. Skin, of this character who believes he is the devil, possibly is the devil. I, I, I love the way that story tracks and the, that character kind of falls from grace when he doesn't get his soul. And I think when I watched that the movie back then, I never questioned for a second. I believed, yeah, he's he is the devil. It's an unconventional portrayal of the devil, but that's him. And now watching it as a as an adult, You know, I I look at it and think it's I think it's it's far more obtuse than that. He very well could be a, a mentally ill person who believes that he is this guy. But there's this scene where he goes to he's running out of money as he you know, he needs money to fund these cross country trips to collect souls. And how does he make his money? He goes to bingo halls in these small towns in these communities, buys a bunch of bingo cards and wins every single game of bingo. How is he winning every bingo game unless he has some you know, some supernatural abilities? It really makes you wonder.
0: Is it a game of skill or is it a game of chance?
1: Well, yeah, exactly. And how is he winning all these games? He seems pretty confident when he walks in there that he's going to fill his pockets with cash. You can't cheat at bingo, as he points out in one of my favorite lines in the movie. You can't cheat at bingo. <laughs> so I love I love that sequence and I love that that character and that whole subplot which I think Pulls the whole thing together beautifully.
0: I love how everything in this feels like an Errol Morris documentary come to fictional life. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Can you give an example?
0: It makes me think about Heaven's Gate or the, the Gates of Heaven one about the pet cemetery where everyone's just a little bit waxy and a little bit off and they all have those giant eyes and they're telling these stories that are so absurd and so unusual and so heightened but with this calm, collected sort of manner which feels very Errol Morrisian. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I love that too, and 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 I love I love you know the the task at hand for the for the opening is to you have to illustrate that Pokey is kind of trapped in this one horse town and that it's not meeting his needs. It's not challenging him, and the way they do that is by giving him this typical his French Canadian best friend who he drinks beer, who just wants to drink, gets loaded every night, and wants him to play music in his band. And there's the great conversation about it, how it, his conversation about how his cover band is a BTO, a BTO cover band. And, and Pokey's like, I just, I don't know if you can play horn in a BTO cover band. And then the classic, well, but what's wrong with BTO? <laughs> uh, but the epitome of small town Canada is that the band in the town is a Bachman Turner Overdrive cover band. I think kind of speaks volumes in a really... Specific, quirky, and very Canadian reference. I love that.
0: I also genuinely love that he's bad at playing the horn. That's actually not what he's good at. Because in another film that was more uh, fairy or even more American, he'd be really good at it, and that would be how he made his money down the road when he gets totally screwed over. Uh, <laughs> instead of being the barber that he is, he is a barber. He is Canadian. He's a simple man. Just let him do his thing and be good at it. He can love to play the trumpet. It doesn't mean if he's he's good at it.
1: That's a great point. I mean, there's that climactic moment where you near know, the third act where he's separated from her. He's on his own. He doesn't have any money. He needs to make some money to get home. And he, he sets up on the corner in New Orleans and pulls out his trumpet. And I guess the first time you watch this, you think he's about to just play the most amazing trumpet you've ever heard. And people are going to just dump money into his. But of course, a few squeaks out of that horn and you realize he doesn't really know even know how to play it. And he pulls out the the comb. And makes his money by cutting hair, and uh, it's a great scene. And of course, it's a biker, it's a biker gang that pulls up and and says they want to shave, and warns him that if he cuts him while he's shaving him. You know he's a dead man, so you've got this sort of raised tension and stay. It's a great, it's a great point. I, 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 uh, I love that scene too.
0: Oh, and I, the one last thing that I that I love, well, I'll give you one more too, Jonas. I know there's so many. Bruce McDonald's use of soundtrack always absolutely kills me, and the fact that he got the tracks he got for this film absolutely boggles my mind. Uh, apparently, he was offered "Life Is a Highway" by Tom Cochran as well, and was like, "Yeah, no, that's not happening." Oh, wow.
1: which was like the biggest song. It was like the song of the year that year, and.
0: East. Which it doesn't fit. Like it makes sense why he didn't take it. Yeah, of course. That's uh, yeah. It's amazing. It's very Bruce McDonald
1: to say no, thank you.
0: But it's also his use, and he does this in Roadkill. He does this all over the place of using actual rock stars in his uh, in his film. So like Jello Biafra plays the customs guard going across. Apparently Neil Young was supposed to have a cameo in this, but he decided like to rewrite his role so it would be significantly bigger. And they were like, yeah, we can't really afford that. And he ended up going on tour anyway, so it was moot. But but he just has such a great way of integrating music and film and making everything just a little bit cooler because of that.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, that's great. I didn't know that. And, I, I, and I'm also going to point at the very uh, brilliant, subversive sex scene that occurs in the movie. Part of the tension of any road trip movie or a man and woman coming together to go in on this trip together, there is sexual tension and, you know, the will they, won't they. You know they're going to eventually... Uh, end up in bed or sleeping together, and and she proposes it early in the in the very casually early on in the script in this in the movie. You know, hey, if you want to have sex, we can totally have sex. I mean, it's going to come up. So do you want it? And he's like, I oh, no, he's very uncomfortable with this and 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 awkward, and says no, thank you, and he kind of moves on. But by the time she's ready, and she there's this great subversion or flip, a sort of flipping of the of the typical power struggle where she at gunpoint, she holds him at gunpoint, leads him into the backyard behind the church, makes him take his clothes off in a kind of a playful way. And that's where the sex scene occurs. And she's, of course, sort of the dominant in the sex scene. And I just thought, for, especially for 1991, what a great way to get them into this sex scene that is inevitable, that your audience kind of expects and really wants to see these two characters end up together, you know, physically, and I just thought that was a stroke of genius in a really original, unexpected, sort of fun way to play that out.
0: That's something interesting about Bruce McDonald's work in general, is the way he handles sex in all of his films, because it's never actually about the sex. It's always about the character dynamic. I think about Hardcore Logo, and the entire point of that film and the crux of it is that Joe Dick wants to have sex again with, with Billy Talent, and Billy doesn't want to think about it, doesn't love Joe Dick the same way, and wants to leave. And... And so it's about the sex, but it's not about the sex. And all of these films seem to have that little element of that.
1: Yeah, that's a really good observation. I would agree. And I'm sure if we we did a, a full analysis of Bruce's films, we'd find more of that going on.
0: Oh, I'll work on that. That's on my list. But until uh, then, <laughs> we uh, we have to end the episode. I'm sorry. I know they go so they go so fast. So Jonas, please tell people how they can find you and your work.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you can find me and any updates about my work at JonasChernick.com. You know, keep your eyes open for, for James versus his future self, playing film festivals across Canada right now, opening in theaters across Canada in February or March of 2020. Shortly thereafter, it will be on VOD, iTunes, all the platforms, and then eventually it'll uh, quickly hit Crave so you can watch it there. Yeah, and, and more to come. So keep your eyes peeled.
0: Fantastic. I highly recommend that as well as the rest of Jonas's work, including Borealis, which we've talked on the show before, and I love it. Uh, that is everything for me as well. You can find me on the Twitters at LaShrimpton. That's the masculine Shrimpton over there. And you can find the podcast at RCMPod. You can also sponsor us on Patreon, patreon.com slash RCMPod. Not RCMPodcast. That's the real men's Christian podcast. That's not us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Jonas. This was such a pleasure.
1: Thanks, Becky. It was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.